Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So on this podcast, I've been working on a number of ongoing series. I plan to work soon on the next Myth of the Month, which will be on a very big subject that I've had in mind for a long time, but have been sort of avoiding, and that is culture. And that will be all or partly for patrons only. So if you want to hear my examination and dissection of the myth and the idea of culture, please sign up as a patron. But right now, I want to start working on a project that I've also been thinking about for some time, especially at this moment as we're seeing a war in Eastern Europe, and that is the origins of the First World War. And my hope is to start this series by examining each of the major combatant countries that started and entered into the war in 1914. And this will be the first one on the Ottoman Empire. And this is brought to you by the letter F. So firstly, as for the debate over the roots and causes of World War I, this is a highly complex debate that's been going on, of course, for more than a century. And I will not go through the whole thing and all the different scholars and historians who have weighed in, but I'll try to just roughly summarize the different approaches to this question so you can understand what I'm trying to do. So people have been debating this question of the causes of the First World War since before the combat had even ended. It began as soldiers, journalists, and other witnesses looked around at all of the carnage and destruction happening around them and asked, why is this happening? How did we even end up here? And the first canonical or consensus answer to that question was advanced by the victors at the conference at Versailles at the end of the war, namely that it was Germany's fault, they were the aggressors, and they must pay. Now, not long after the Treaty of Versailles, a new view emerged in society at large, and a new consensus took shape starting in the 1920s, which held that all the major nations were in some way at fault. Diplomats and generals on all sides had been reckless or even eager for war, and so blame should be shared all around. And this basic view held sway, especially among pacifists, who were probably its strongest devotees, in the interwar era from the 20s through the 30s. But this view, too, was called into question then by the Second World War, where Nazi aggression and the bid for complete domination of Europe brought back the idea of German exceptionalism, or as it was called in German, the Sonderweg, the special way. And this is the idea that there was just something strange and different about Germany that made it especially dangerous, and that it had been the agent of chaos, upsetting the European diplomatic system and plunging the world into war. So this new wave of exceptionalism got a scholarly imprimatur from the German historian Fritz Fischer, who examined the German government archives as they were released in the 1960s, and it basically held sway through the 70s. And for instance, the historian Christopher Clark, who is actually originally from Australia, he recalls being taught as a schoolboy growing up in Australia that if he was ever asked about the causes of the First World War, he just needed to remember the five German provocations. 
namely Germany built up its navy in the 1890s, thus provoking the British. In 1905, Germany challenged the French in Africa, leading to the first Moroccan crisis. In 1908, Germany supported Austria against Russia in the Bosnian annexation crisis. In 1911, they provoked France in Morocco again. And in 1914, of course, they backed Austria over Russia in the dispute over the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, providing Austria with the infamous so-called blank check. So all of this might sound very appealingly simple, especially to people in a country like Australia closely tied to Great Britain. And this view was more or less canonical in much of the English-speaking world. But you might notice that there are certain problems that should stand out as fairly obvious in this kind of pat, simplistic explanation. For one thing, these German provocations were cherry-picked from the many complex events of a period of over 15 years. They leave out all of the aggressive acts that were committed by other parties, not Germany. Such as, perhaps most obviously, it was Serbian terrorists, not the Germans, who actually killed the Archduke in 1914, thus leading to the July crisis and ultimately to war. Also, more broadly, on a more conceptual level, this list of provocations is based on the assumption that other states, apart from Germany, are entitled to just treat the globe like their own private property, to divide up among themselves and control without contest. For instance, Britain is entitled to rule the waves without having to compete with anyone else's navy. France is entitled to control Africa uncontested, and so forth. And so in this way, the German guilt and German exceptionalist narrative depends upon simply ignoring how much all the other European states acted like Germany, basically throwing their weight around, intimidating their rivals, and aggressively carving up the world into their spheres of influence, always trying to grab the largest slice of cake. And indeed, this is exactly how political cartoons of this age constantly portrayed the great powers as greedy children basically carving up the globe among themselves. And so in recent times, basically since the 1980s, a new revisionist or a sort of re-revisionist view has emerged, which removes responsibility from individual state actors and transfers it instead to broader abstract forces and conditions of the era that acted upon all of these states and that led them into intense competition and ultimately into war. And these main forces have come to be summarized with the handy acronym MAIN, M-A-I-N, as in the main causes of the war were militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. So this list is fair enough as a description of the broad, pervasive forces guiding the great powers' actions in the early 1900s. But you might also notice they are quite vague and ambiguous. And moreover, none of them were new, but they had all been around for decades in some form, or even for centuries, or indeed arguably for all of human history. And so they cannot account for the outbreak of this specific war. For example, militarism. Many states have been militaristic all through known history, especially most states who go to war can be called militaristic. It's almost a tautology. So this does not answer the question why this war among these particular states in this time and place. Now as for alliances, this is referring to a more specific phenomenon that you may have heard of, the alignment of the European states around 1900 into competing networks of the, the central powers and the Triple Entente. 
And this is ironic to list this among the causes of the war. For one thing, because usually alliances are understood as helping to keep the peace. Now, it may be arguably that they played the opposite role in World War I, or at least they may help to explain why some states, such as France, entered or were dragged into the war when they might have otherwise stayed out of it. But nonetheless, they cannot explain why the war began in the first place. And further, some scholars argue that these alliances weren't really that strong anyway in the first place. For instance, the Triple Entente that brought together Britain, France, and Russia was not even really an alliance. It was just a conditional understanding. That's what Entente means in French. It was not in any way binding. And beyond that, certain important combatant countries such as Italy actually simply ignored and pulled out of these alliances and then later on chose which side to support. So these alliances did not in some fatalistic way predetermine the course of the war, much less did they cause the war. As for nationalism, I'll skip to the end of the acronym. As for nationalism, this was probably a factor. But national pride and patriotism come into play in basically all wars. And more often, they come in as a result more than as a cause of the combat. And while it's certainly true that national feeling was strong in several countries in 1914, so was economic and cultural interdependence. In many ways, Europe had been knit together economically and socially far more than it had ever been before in its history, at least since the late Middle Ages. And there were very close diplomatic ties among most of the countries involved. For instance, you may know the rulers, the monarchs on the thrones of Britain, Germany, and Russia were all cousins. So it doesn't seem as if nationalism is adequate to explain, again, this specific war, who got involved, when and how, and the level of death and destruction that resulted. Now I save imperialism to last. So it is certainly true that the major combatants in this war were all imperial states. And that is a significant fact. But most of them had been for centuries. This was not a new situation. Britain, for instance, had been an overseas imperial power for more than 300 years. And imperialism in and of itself does not explain this specific war. And that is especially glaringly obvious because this is a war which did not start in a dispute over the colonies, but rather in a crisis in Eastern Europe. And the fact that people invoke imperialism as a cause of this war is especially ironic in historical perspective. Because in the first decade of the 20th century, up till about 1910, it was widely expected that a war would inevitably break out, specifically between Britain and Germany, over the overseas colonies, most likely in Africa, where Germany was trying to involve itself against the wishes of the premier imperial power, which was Britain. However, by 1911, the tensions between those countries had largely been resolved. Diplomatic protocols and procedures had been worked out that successfully mediated and diffused conflicts between the great powers. And by 1913, observers were remarking on how peaceful Europe was and how it seemed that wars between the great powers might be a thing of the past. Indeed, most people in 1914 were bewildered by the eruption of a new unexpected diplomatic crisis, and even more so by the sudden plunge into war. And today, if we want to account for how this war broke out, we have to examine the actual specifics. 
And as I want to stress, we have to grapple with the fact that this war began in Eastern Europe, in lands that had long been ruled by the Ottoman Empire, and in a zone that had become an arena of contestation and strife. As the Ottomans withdrew, and as other powers, both old and new, moved into the power vacuum. And so I want to start this series by examining the history, the politics, and the agendas of the states that actually started this war in Eastern Europe. And the first of these will be the Ottomans. So the Ottoman Empire was a combatant state in the First World War, entering into the war in November 1914. So a few months after combat had already begun, involving Austria-Hungary, Russia, Serbia, Germany. But I'm starting here with the Ottomans because it's easy to forget, again, that this war began in Eastern Europe, specifically in the Balkans. And so Ottoman rule and the decline and fall of the Ottoman Empire forms the deep background of this whole incident. Hungary, Serbia, and Bosnia all had been under Ottoman rule for several centuries, and arguably the war began because of jockeying for power as the Ottoman order broke down. And as this lecture hopefully will show, there was a sort of scramble for the Ottoman lands, much like the more famous scramble for Africa. So in order to understand what the Ottoman Empire was and what was at stake and how this situation could have led to a world war, I want to start, as I often do, with just a short story. So this story takes place in January 1853, when one evening Tsar Nicholas I of Russia was leaving a private concert in St. Petersburg, and he was approached by the British ambassador to Russia, Hamilton Seymour. And Ambassador Seymour urgently needed to know what the Russians' intentions were. This was because a diplomatic fight had been mounting between Russia and France, and the fight stemmed from disputes between Catholics and Eastern Orthodox Christians over the holy sites in Palestine, most particularly in Bethlehem. Both sides, the French representing the Catholic interests and Russia representing the Eastern Orthodox, tried to push the Ottoman government to resolve the dispute in their favor. And they started exerting power and intimidation. France started moving ships into Ottoman waters. They bombarded Tripoli and Lebanon. And they moved a newly built 80-gun ship of the line called the Charlemagne right up into the Bosporus, directly past the capital of Constantinople and the Imperial Palace. On the other side, Russia had been moving troops over land southward around the Black Sea, approaching the Danube River, and hence the Ottoman border. And it seemed that war between the two powers might be approaching. War not only with the Ottomans, but over control of the entire empire itself, its territories, and its crucial capital at Constantinople. So Russian officials during this crisis had been quietly trying to sound out the British government for their position and floating to them the idea of invading the Ottoman Empire and partitioning it among themselves. The British ambassador asked the Tsar why he seemed so willing to go to war, despite all the risks and costs. And according to the ambassador's diary, the Tsar basically shrugged and suggested that it was inevitable, since the Ottoman Empire was going to fall anyway. Quote, the country is falling to pieces. Who can say when? Later, the ambassador wrote up a report to his superiors two days later, and in that report he claimed that the Tsar called the Ottoman Empire, quote, the sick man of Europe. Now, it happens that war did follow, but to the surprise of almost everyone, it was the Ottomans who took the first initiative. 
they sent armies northward and crossed the Danube and preemptively attacked the Russians on land. They then subsequently were joined by supporters from France, Great Britain, and Piedmont Sardinia. And together this allied coalition with the Ottomans won important victories, especially on the Crimean Peninsula, on the northern shore of the Black Sea, the main success being the capture of the port city of Sebastopol. So this war, which of course we know now as the Crimean War, was mainly a struggle over the control of the Black Sea. And the result was a conditional Russian defeat. Russia withdrew its troops from the Balkans on the western shore of the Black Sea, giving up its claim on the mouth of the Danube River. In the east, it gave up the city of Kars, which was the key to controlling the area of Georgia and Armenia on the eastern shore of the Black Sea. And most importantly, it agreed to demilitarize the Black Sea, forbidding any warships from setting sail on the sea. And as a result, Russia gave up its important naval bases and yards on the northern shores of the sea at Sebastopol, Odessa, and Kherson. So hence, by the end of the war in 1856, it seemed that the reports of the Ottoman Empire's imminent death had been greatly exaggerated. But still, the phrase, sick man of Europe, stuck. It became popular, and it has remained so to the present. And this phrase captures the long lingering sense that the Ottoman Empire was in inexorable and fatal decline, and hence that its territories and its strategically vital ports and fortresses, from Europe to Iraq to Egypt, were prizes for the taking, that outside powers would have to race in order to grab first. But ironically, the loss of territory for the Ottoman Empire was largely the result of European powers agreeing to prey upon it, and hence, in a sense, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the phrase, sick man of Europe, further captures the image in a deeper, more intuitive way. It captures the image of the Ottoman Empire as decadent, decrepit, as an oriental despotism in the classic sense. But this also was not really true, or like so many myths, it is only partly true. In reality, the Ottoman state was in a gradually mounting crisis from the late 1600s onwards until it finally collapsed in the early 20th century, more than 200 years later. And this eventual collapse resulted from changes over time in technology, demographics, and the shifting balance of power in Europe, which presented the Ottoman Empire with a relentless series of crisis after crisis. But nonetheless, the Ottomans did make many serious efforts to change and to reorient, many of which were fairly effective, and amidst the supposed inexorable decline, there were periods of considerable prosperity and success. And it is remarkable, of course, that a major world power, what had been a major world power, eventually declined and disappeared from the world map. But it's arguably even more amazing how long it lasted. The Ottoman dynasty outlived the Bourbons in France, the Holy Roman Empire, the Hohenzollerns in Germany, and the Habsburgs in Austria, and finally even the Romanovs in Russia. And the Ottoman Empire is sometimes casually listed as one of those old empires that fell in World War I. But even this is not technically true. It actually survived even through the First World War before being finally overthrown and replaced with the secular Turkish Republic in the 1920s. So it really demands explanation is not simply why did the Ottoman Empire decline, but why did it manage to last and persist for so long? And moreover, to understand everything that happened in Europe in the Middle East in the 20th century, 
we must understand what the Ottoman Empire was, how it worked, and what became of it. Okay, so let's back up and try to grasp what was the Ottoman Empire in its heyday, basically the 15 and 1600s. And the peak of the empire is sometimes said to be specifically under the rule of the highly effective and successful Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who ruled from 1520 to 66. So in Suleiman's time and in the several decades after, the Ottoman Empire was an enormous domain centered, of course, at the capital of Constantinople, which was a prestigious ancient city, and also, in addition to that, a critical strategic point controlling the Bosporus, the narrow strait running from the Aegean Sea to the Black Sea. So the site of Constantinople was a critical choke point, both for sea travel from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, hence linking southern Europe and the Middle East to northern and eastern Europe and Central Asia, north to south. And also, at the same time, it was a critical portage point for land travel crossing from Europe to Asia, and hence linking east and west. And arguably, this site of Constantinople was the most important strategic fulcrum in the world. The main rivals today would be basically the Suez Canal in Egypt and the Panama Canal in Central America, both of which would be built later and didn't exist yet in this time. So Constantinople, previous to being captured by the Ottomans, it had been the Byzantine capital. It came gradually under pressure from a confederation of Turkish tribes and clans, at first under the leadership of the Seljuk dynasty, which was then replaced by the newer Ottoman dynasty in the 1300s. And under the Ottomans, this Turkish confederation created a navy, crossed over into Europe, began making conquests in the Balkans, encircled the city of Constantinople, and then finally captured it after a long siege and bombardment in 1453. So having taken Constantinople, the Ottoman Turks then proceeded to consolidate their gains and expand their empire in all directions. And at its height, the empire controlled massive provinces, including all of the critical juncture points of Europe, Asia, and Africa. In Europe, they occupied the whole Balkan Peninsula from the regions we now know as Romania and Hungary in the north, down to Greece and the Aegean Islands. They also dominated various tributary states around the Black Sea, including the Tatar Khanate of the Crimea. In Asia, they controlled the entire Middle East, including Anatolia, which is most of today's Turkey, Armenia, Kurdistan, the Southern Caucasus, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, and Hejaz which was the western area of Arabia along the Red Sea, including the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. In North Africa, they held Egypt and all of the Maghreb from Libya westward to Morocco. Altogether, the Ottoman Empire encompassed lands that today comprise 43 independent countries. As for the demographics of the empire, it was home to about 30 million people, and its population was an incredibly complex tapestry with hundreds of different tribes and ethnicities speaking dozens of different languages. As for religion, Muslims were only a minority in the empire. More than half of the people were Christian. The most densely populated provinces of the empire were those in Europe, and these were mostly Eastern Orthodox, of various regional and national churches. About a quarter of the empire's population was Greek Orthodox specifically, there also were Roman Catholics, especially in Hungary, and in smaller outposts around the empire. 
In addition, there was a very large collection of Eastern Christian communities in the Middle East. So even in the Asian provinces, there were large Christian populations such as the Copts in Egypt, Maronites in Lebanon and Syria, Gregorian Christians in Armenia, Syriac and Chaldean Christians in Iraq. And in addition, there were many other religious groups apart from the Muslims and Christians. There were communities of Jews, including in Salonika, in Macedonia, in modern-day Greece, as well as in Galilee and Jerusalem in Palestine. And there were also Mandeans in southern Iraq, Druze in Lebanon, and others. So Muslims, as of the 1500s, comprised only about 20% of the population of the empire, and their numbers grew only very slowly, mostly through voluntary conversion. So how did the Ottoman state rule this incredibly complex, multivarious empire? They ruled largely indirectly, with what you might call a relatively light touch. So the Ottoman forces could use great brutality and destruction in order to impose their rule after conquest and in order to suppress rebellions or resistance. But as long as Ottoman sovereignty was basically respected in the provinces, they largely left civil society alone. They would send out small numbers of governors and other officials in order to collect indirect taxes and tributes from the provinces, but there was no extensive bureaucracy, at least outside the royal palace in Constantinople. There was no single centralized legal or administrative system, and they ruled largely by co-opting local elites, especially religious elites of the various faiths. There was no attempt at uniformity, and for most of Ottoman history, no centralization. The unifying factor of the empire was really just the person of the sultan himself, who ruled from Topkapi Palace on a hill overlooking the Bosporus. The government of the empire was metonymically called the Sublime Port, which initially was just the term for the large ornamented gateway into the outer courtyard of the palace, which is where the emperor or imperial officials might make public announcements. So this is how people thought of the government. It was just the people who appeared at the gateway. The sultan was understood to be the supreme military commander, and sometimes he did actually venture out in order to command armies. But otherwise, he generally remained isolated in the palace and specifically in the harem, the private quarters with the sultan's wives and concubines. In the early years of the empire, the sultan might actively oversee governance, chairing a supreme executive council called the Divan, which would include the major officials such as foreign minister, the grand mufti, who was the head religious authority, the grand vizier, who was basically like the prime minister, etc., but after 1600, the sultans increasingly withdrew into private and domestic life, only listening to the meetings of the divan from behind a screen. And real de facto rule of the empire was handed over more and more to the grand vizier, who was often highly trained, experienced, and capable. There was naturally an enormous variation in the qualities and abilities of the different sultans. Most of them were not like Suleiman the Magnificent. But nonetheless, all of them came from one single dynasty. This was a long-lasting family line. And this was possible because the sultans had large harems with many wives and concubines, enabling them to father many sons. As for the succession to the Ottoman throne, there was no rule of primogeniture. Rather, any male member of the dynasty who was descended directly from a previous sultan could, in principle, succeed to the throne. 
And so the process for choosing new sultans was a weird sort of tanistry, where the family and the palace staff would choose the new ruler through some sort of political negotiation. And this led then to often very complex intrigue and factional feuding in the palace, especially among the women in the harem, to determine who would end up as the successor and the next sultan. And with each death or deposition of a sultan, because many of them were deposed, there would then be a scramble and power struggle for the throne. And usually after a sort of battle royale, one male heir would emerge as victorious and claim the throne and go through a ceremony where he would be girded with a ceremonial sword in a mosque in Constantinople to mark that he was invested as the sultan. And early on, sultans had to decide what to do with all those other male competitors that they had beaten out for the throne. And the custom was to kill them off, usually by strangulation, which was considered a humane way of eliminating your rivals. But this led over time to a problem of sometimes running out of male heirs, especially if there was a rapid succession of several sultans, you might run out of men. And so the custom changed. And starting in the 1700s, the male competitors were confined to a small closed suite of rooms within the Topkapi Palace called the Cafe. And they would basically be imprisoned there and kept in a sort of luxurious prison. And if at some point in future they were needed to take the throne next, they'd be taken out of the cafe and girded with the imperial sword. So this can strike us as a very weird system, but it had certain advantages. And the advantages included that the sultans were usually fairly shrewd politicians who would have a base of support and allies already when coming to the throne. The downsides include that the sultans were often very ruthless and brutal. They had to be people willing to kill or imprison their rivals. And often they, had, they would spend much of their life isolated in the palace, and they would often be very unhealthy, suffering from tuberculosis, diabetes, addictions, and other ailments. And it, indeed, most sultans in the later centuries of the empire either died or were deposed from the throne by age 60. And also, obviously, if a son didn't succeed to the throne, they would have to, as I said, dip into the cafe and see who was still living there, who could be put forward as another sultan. And these would be even more isolated, unaware of the outside world, often paranoid. Some of them were simply unable to handle rulership, and so they would quickly abdicate or be removed from the throne. And even if they did remain on the throne, they would basically hand power over to the grand vizier or in many instances to a wife or mother. And indeed, there was a long period at the heyday of the empire in the late 15 and early 1600s. There was a period that's been dubbed the reign of women, where it basically was understood that it was really the wives and mothers of the sultans who actually ruled from behind the throne. So whatever the strong points and weak points of this strange dynastic system, this Ottoman dynasty did hold on to power for almost 600 years. So this raises the question, of course, of legitimation. How did this dynasty legitimate itself? How did it justify its rule over this enormous empire? Well, this was a very important matter because the empire really had been born, as everyone knew, out of plunder and conquest, and it was trying to hold together an extremely diverse and fragmented domain. So the sultans really could not just use sheer force and coercion to keep this empire together. If they tried to do that, it would simply fall apart into chaos. So they needed ways of peaceably obtaining compliance from their subject peoples. 
And they did this mainly through religious ideas and language. This was at root really a religious empire legitimized in religious terms. It was, for one thing, an explicitly Islamic empire. The sultans presented themselves as the leaders and protectors of Islam. The empire was understood to be the farthest forward advance of Islam in the West, and hence the sort of forward guard protecting the Islamic world. And furthermore, it was understood to extend the Dar al-Islam, or the House of Islam, or the House of Peace, outward as a sort of forward front into the Dar al-Harb, the House of War, which is how they described the world beyond the rule of Islam. And even more importantly, after 1517, when the sultans captured Egypt, the sultans claimed the title of caliph, and hence as successor and representative of Muhammad and leader of the entire Islamic community, or Ummah. They held the symbolic keys to the holy city of Mecca, and hence they claimed the great duty and prestige of being protectors of the holy pilgrimage sites in Arabia. So all of this gave them tremendous prestige and power, but with certain important strings attached. The sultans were under constant scrutiny and pressure to uphold and adhere to Islamic law, or as it was called in Turkish, the shariat, basically the equivalent of sharia. And they had to depend upon the Islamic scholars and clergy, called the ulema, for support and legitimacy. And the ulema was led at the top by the Grand Mufti, who had enormous authority and who had the power to issue fetvas or Islamic rulings with the power to remove anyone from office, including the sultan himself. And indeed, out of the 24 sultans who ruled in the empire after 1600, 13 of them, more than half, were deposed by the order of the Grand Mufti. So this was a real power that could actually make or unmake sultans. Now, within the empire, since it was, as I said, an Islamic empire, Muslims had the greatest rights. They had rights to bear arms, to serve in the military, in the imperial government, and the Islamic religion had certain advantages. For instance, others, including Christians and Jews, could convert to Islam, but not vice versa. Right? Conversion out of Islam was considered apostasy, and that was a capital crime. Only Muslims could hold public processions and celebrations. That was forbidden for other religions. But nonetheless, non-Muslims were extended certain significant rights and protections as dhimmi, or people of the book. So Christians, Jews, and in some cases other monotheists who had a book of prophecy and law were regarded as real legitimate religions with the right to be protected, to right to have their beliefs and practices protected. So the non-Muslim populations in the empire were organized into religious groupings, each of which was allowed to have its own courts, its own civil laws, to run their own schools, and to collect taxes on the ground among themselves, even if they then had to forward most of that money to the imperial capital. The major non-Muslim religious groups were called millets, and these included, most importantly, the Eastern Orthodox Christians, the Armenian Christians, and Jews. Other minor religious groups also had some degree of autonomy, and several of them were later on in, in later years promoted to the status of millets, such as the Syriac and Chaldean Christians in Iraq and the Roman Catholics in Europe. The Dhimmi, or people of the millets, were excluded from military and high-level government offices, 
And because they couldn't render military service to the sultan, they instead were required to pay a jizya tax, a sort of head tax, from which Muslims were excused. The Milats got special recognition and representation for their leaders. Most significantly, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch and the Chief Rabbi were both considered major high-level officials of the empire, with the right to take part in major internal policy decisions in Constantinople. The Milets had certain freedoms to travel and to teach and preach. They were allowed to convert to other religions if they chose, but as I said, Muslims could not convert out. They were allowed to take legal cases to their own law courts, but also if they didn't like the result, they could also appeal to Islamic courts. So these different policies and laws are complex and ambiguous because in different ways they give supremacy to Islam. For example, you can appeal to an Islamic court as a sort of higher authority to overrule a Christian or Jewish court, and in this way it undermined the non-Muslim courts. But at the same time, it allowed members of the Millets greater freedom of choice. They also had freedom to conduct trade internally and abroad, and most trade of the empire, of course, was by sea. This was mostly a maritime empire, and the sea trade was managed primarily by Greeks. And Greek merchants, especially the so-called Phanariots in the old Greek neighborhood of Constantinople, were among the richest and most powerful people in the whole empire. So if this is more or less how the Ottoman system worked, why is it, why would Muslims and Christians accept this weird arrangement? How did it work for them? Why did Christians accept Ottoman Muslim rule for so many centuries? And why did Turkish Muslims accept Christian rights and autonomy within the empire? Well, basically, at its heart, the stability of the empire depended on a sort of carefully negotiated alliance, mainly between Turkish Muslims and Eastern Orthodox Christians, who were the main most powerful groups. And this sort of uneasy negotiated alliance between Turks and Eastern Orthodox was based upon the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So from the vantage point of the Orthodox Christians, they did not entirely trust the Muslim rulers, but they did see the Ottoman state as a bulwark against the Western powers. So the main enemies of the Ottoman Empire to the West were Austria on the land and Venice at sea. And those Western states were Christian, but they were Roman Catholic. And unlike Muslims, Catholics did consider it their duty to actively try to convert the Eastern Orthodox and to destroy even their churches and their way of life from the point of view of the Eastern Orthodox. Hence, many Eastern Orthodox, especially the religious leaders, who were the main most prestigious centers of the community, the religious leaders actually preferred Ottoman rule. And this could come into play, for example, in the Peloponnesus in southern Greece in the 1680s. Venice took that region over during a war with the Ottomans, but Venice was unable to hold it because the Greek residents of the Peloponnese undermined them and actively preferred to bring the Ottomans back. It was the Venetians who were trying to shut down their monasteries, replace their priests, and change their sacred liturgy. So Orthodox elites, especially churchmen, saw the Ottomans as the lesser evil, or even as protectors of their church against the hostile Catholic powers. And then further, in later years, in the late 1700s and the 1800s, they also came to see the Ottoman Empire as a protector and bulwark against 
radical secular ideas radiating from the West. For example, in 1798, the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem issued an exhortation where he condemned the so-called new liberties coming from the West, and he particularly meant France. And he called the Sultan God's chosen protector of the faith. And he wrote, for instance, quote, The Almighty Lord puts into the heart of the Sultan of these Ottomans an inclination to keep free the religious beliefs of our Orthodox faith, and as a work of supererogation to protect them, even to the point of occasionally chastising Christians who deviate from their faith, in order that they may have always before their eyes the fear of God, end quote. So the Ottoman Empire, again, as embodied in the person of the sultan, could be seen as a sort of instrument of God, so long as he upheld and protected the integrity of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now what about the other side? What about for the Muslims? Why did this extremely powerful Islamic empire and the Muslims and Turks who were loyal to it, why would they tolerate this extensive freedom, power, and wealth? among the Christians? Well, the basic answer is that they knew that they needed Christian support and cooperation in bringing money and manpower in from the provinces and from the Christian subject peoples into the capital in order to fight against the real enemy. Because the arch nemesis of the Ottoman Empire was not the European states to the West. They were more of an annoyance. Actually, it was Safavid Persia, to the east. Now you might ask, weren't the Persians at this time also Muslim? And the answer is yes, they were, but they were Shiite Muslim. So from the point of view of the Ottomans and their Muslim subjects, Shia was not a protected faith. They were not dhimmi or people of the book. Shia, in their view, was a heresy, threatening to corrupt and destroy the true faith. And so wars against the Western powers for the Ottomans were more or less just a means to an end, a way to enhance their security and their resources. They were not usually called jihad, but the wars against the Persian Shiite enemy in the east were jihad. And that was the struggle that the sultan had to constantly keep up in order to maintain his legitimacy. So basically, as a result, these two parties, right, the Islamic State and the Christian Eastern Orthodox peoples. These two parties coexisted in an uneasy and unequal alliance because each one saw the arrangement as preferable to being overrun by their true enemies, whether that was the Catholic powers to the West for the Orthodox Christians or Shiite Persia to the East for the Muslims. Okay, so if that was the basic negotiated political underpinning of the empire... Who actually enforced Ottoman power? Who did the dirty work of fighting the wars and suppressing rebellions? Well, the principal arm of Ottoman power was the Janissary Corps. So this was an army of slave soldiers, highly trained and disciplined, which was in fact the first permanent standing army in Europe, and for many years the premier fighting force and the terror of Eurasia. So where did the Janissary Corps come from? Its origins were as basically human loot. So early on, as the Turks were sweeping westward through Anatolia and into Europe, the emperors would take one-fifth of all the loot as tribute from their fighters. And this included one-fifth of all the prisoners of war as their royal share. So this evolved into basically the systematic taking of youths, converting them in the capital to Islam, 
and then training them as elite fighters in order to then further feed more pillaging, more expansion, more conquest. And this core, and they came to be called the Janissaries, this became the main fighting force of the empire. And they were stationed partly at the capital and also at fortresses and outposts all around the outer provinces of the empire, but especially in the Balkans. The Janissaries were in a sense almost holy warriors. They were forbidden to marry before the age of 40. They were forbidden to practice trades. They were subject to strict discipline, but they also were paid fairly generously and they were given pensions in old age. They were regarded as having high status, despite the fact that they were technically legally slaves. And this Janissary fighting force was beyond formidable. They were practically undefeated for several hundred years. Now, in the 1500s, as the borders of the empire stabilized and there wasn't as much raiding and pillaging going on, the Janissaries were recruited mainly through a system called Divshirma. And this was a forced levy or forced conscription of boys and young men placed upon the Christian communities. Not Muslims, not Jews, only Christians. So through the 15 and early 1600s, every five years, Ottoman officials would fan out and canvas through the Balkans. And they would take from the Christian families one-fifth of all the preteen boys, aged about seven or so to 14. They would take them back to the capital, convert them to Islam, and then put them directly into intense military training. Many of these uh, Janissaries, who were requisitioned through Divshirma, would then rise to become officers in the military forces. Some of them were given educations and became scribes, government officials, diplomats. And it happened that several boys who were taken through Divshirma over the course of the 16 and 1700s rose all the way to the top of the government to become the Grand Vizier and more or less the de facto ruler of the empire. So it was a very strange system and a very strange journey. Now, Devshirma was and is today highly controversial. Of course, it was often resisted and bitterly resented, especially in the early years. But over time, there was more and more willing compliance to the Divshirma system, and some families, it seems, in the 1600s even angled to get their sons chosen because it came to be seen as desirable. It was an opportunity for a career, wealth, power. It could bring back benefits to the family and community of a boy who rose into government. And there were cases where Jewish communities actually campaigned to be included in the Divshirma system but were denied. Now, Divshirma was finally abolished in 1648, mainly because it was not needed anymore. There were simply plenty of boys and youths of all faiths who would willingly volunteer to join the Janissary Corps and to have the chance to become respected commanders or government officials. So by 1700, the Janissary system was very strongly self-perpetuating, and the Corps had become enormously powerful not only on the battlefield, but even more so within the empire. The Corps was highly unified, disciplined, and religiously fanatical. Remember, these are boys who had been taken out of their social context and converted to Islam as they were reintegrated into a new life. That was their whole world. And there is no zealot like the convert. The Corps, it seemed, could be fanatical and even cult-like. And moreover, the Janissaries were willing and able to block imperial decrees, if they saw them as improper or contrary to Islamic law, or even to overthrow sultans. Remember, the, the Grand Mufti could issue a fetva to overthrow a sultan, but who would actually enforce and carry out such an order? It really hinged on 
the Janissaries. And so the situation with the Janissary Corps became similar to other episodes in history, like you might think of the Praetorian Guard in the Roman Empire and the way that they were effectively really in control of the capital and could make or break emperors, overthrow, assassinate their own emperors if they wanted to, or the Knights Templar in the High Middle Ages, which became so powerful it was really like a state unto itself with domains all around Europe. And they became a threat to the established monarchs of Europe to the point that King Philip the Fair of France had to hatch an elaborate plot to attack them, arrest them, and kill their leaders just in order to remove this threat to his own power. So the Janissaries clearly by the 1700s had become dangerous in this way, a kind of state within a state, which even the Sultan himself possibly couldn't control. Nonetheless, if we say that, say, the mid-1600s, it seemed as if the Ottoman Empire was riding high. It was one of the great empires of the world with a formidable, almost unbeatable fighting force, great mastery of artillery, fortifications, a firm political grip on its extensive domains and subject populations. What went wrong? At what point and why did the Ottoman Empire go into decline? Well, there's not one single clear answer to this, of course, but there were several things that became apparent over the course of the 1600s. Some of them, firstly, were just common problems of the early modern age that other states were going through as well, such as currency inflation with the enormous influx of silver from the Spanish Empire, which led to inflation and currency debasements as the Ottomans had to keep up with rising prices. There were problems from population growth and the growing cities, such as disease, outbreaks, plague, also fires. The, the growing cities in Anatolia were very vulnerable to massive destructive fires. And all of this should sound reminiscent from the same period of time, say, in England, when you had the Great Visitation and the Great Fire of London. There also, in the Asian provinces, there was an ongoing problem of loss of farmland, especially in the river provinces of Egypt and Iraq. And at this time, desert nomads, mainly Arab Bedouins, were encroaching onto farmlands, grazing their animals in farm fields. And this forced farmers to abandon many of their fields, give up irrigating them, and hence the fields were returning to desert and scrub. And this led to losses of food production and frequent food shortages and famines that struck repeatedly in Middle Eastern provinces. Secondly, there was a structural political problem which is common to many empires that last for hundreds of years, but that is especially dramatic in the Ottoman Empire. There were centrifugal forces that seemed impossible to stop. Gradual loss of control over the outlying provinces, especially the farthest frontiers. And this would happen generation by generation as Ottoman officials set down roots. They would intermarry with local people and elites. They would get involved in local trade and clan politics. And their main attachment more and more, even if they were technically in the service of the sultan, their main attachment more and more was local rather than to the capital. And eventually, by the 16 and 1700s, some of them founded dynasties, acting as almost little monarchs with dynastic thrones that paid only nominal fealty to the sultan in Constantinople. And hence, the empire couldn't trust that these local officials and governors were actually forwarding to the capital all the tax money that they were raising and that they were supposed to pay to the sultan. And 
In times of war, these local warlords also might give only little or half-hearted support, or even in the worst situations they might go rogue and make alliances with the empire's enemies. In extreme cases, there were outright takeovers by basically these sort of local warlords. So in the 1790s and early 1800s, Jazar, called the Butcher, took over control of Lebanon and northern Palestine and basically operated his own despotate within the empire. Somewhat similarly, Ali Pasha in Albania and northwestern Greece. And also this became the pattern all across the Maghreb. So local governors called Beys, who basically ran their own affairs, more or less independent of the empire, these Beys took over control of Tripoli, Tunis, Algiers, and most of Morocco. And by 1800 were more or less independent. Now, what could the empire do about this? They were, in a sense, stuck in a double bind. So how do you prevent these local elites from setting down these roots and shifting their loyalties to themselves and their families and their clans rather than the capital? One, they could, one thing they could do was try to prevent this localization by moving in imperially appointed governors who were closely tied to the capital and the palace and then periodically moving them around and replacing them so they didn't form too much loyalty or attachment to a specific place. So that was one strategy to counter this. But on the other hand, this would mean that these governors had very little knowledge and no investment in the place that they were governing. They then wouldn't bother to make improvements in things like infrastructure or schooling or efficient administration. And so territories that were shifted around in this way would tend to languish, fall behind, or decay. So these were the two horns of the dilemma, right? And the empire never really figured out what to do about it. One apparent solution was to basically grant autonomy and internal self-government to these local regions and their local elites and potentates on the expectation that they would still pay regular tribute or give military service. But this usually didn't work. More often, the process would, simp it would hasten the process of these local areas breaking away and the empire losing them completely. So this happened several times, for instance, in Moldavia and Wallachia in the Balkans. They were given autonomy on, under their own leaders in 1715. But then in the 1800s, Russia basically moved in their agents, took over administration, even though they were still nominally Ottoman provinces. And then later they became fully independent as the Kingdom of Romania in 1862. But this was a relatively lucky case even for the empire. It could be even more violent and dramatic. For instance, the elites in Serbia rebelled starting in 1804 and launched a series of insurrections. They gained autonomy in 1830 and then independence in 1878. And in some cases, this process could lead to foreign takeovers of territory by the empire's enemies. For instance, Algeria, which had basically become an autonomous a statelet under its bay, was actually invaded and then annexed by the French in 1834. So the fate of Algeria becoming a French province, this illustrates the third big, very difficult, almost insurmountable challenge for the Ottoman Empire, which was the rise of their European rivals to the north and west. So after about 1650, it was clear that the Ottomans started to fall behind European powers in terms of tax revenue that they could collect, efficient administration and command, and technology and military strategy. And all of this came to the fore dramatically in the failed 1683 siege of Vienna, 
which is often taken in retrospect to mark the beginning of the Ottomans' decline. So why did this happen in the first place? Well, at this time in the 1600s, most of Hungary was controlled by the Ottomans, but a small part of northern Hungary was actually controlled by the Austrian Empire under the rule of the Habsburg dynasty. And at, the, at this time, the Habsburgs were extremely intolerant fanatical Catholics, and they persecuted the Protestants in Hungary. So the Ottomans saw this as an opportunity, and they gave shelter to Protestant leaders who crossed the border as refugees into the Ottoman Empire. And the Austrians, in response, made incursions across the border into Ottoman Hungary, trying to chase down and capture these Hungarian leaders. So the Ottomans took this then as an opportunity to strike back and attempt to capture that vital, most important capital at the heart of Europe, at Vienna. So they had done this once before back in 1529, when the empire was still very much on the rise, and they had basically given it up because of heavy rains and flooding. So it was just because of a fluke of weather that they couldn't complete it. So in 1683, they decide to try it again. And they send in enormous armies, including many Janissary units and also auxiliary militias, up the Danube, set up an enormous tent encampment on the fields outside Vienna, almost as big as the city itself, under the command of the Grand Vizier. They started to assault and break down the walls of the city, but then they were counterattacked by a coalition of Christian states who rallied together to the relief of Vienna under the leadership of King Jan Sobieski of Poland. And in the Battle of Vienna, the Janissaries themselves were routed. They had to abandon their camp and flee southward to Budapest. So this was the first major defeat for the Janissaries in their entire history. And what is more, the European states capitalized on this moment, and specifically the Catholic states of Austria, Poland, and Venice joined together into a grand alliance in order to try to hit back at the Ottomans when they were on the ropes. And so the Ottomans lost important territories in the Upper Balkans, most importantly all of Hungary, including Budapest. Venice also took the Peloponnesus, that peninsula in southern Greece, and ruled over it for about 30 years until, with Greek help, the Ottomans were able to take it back. So ultimately, the Ottomans were able to limit the losses from this disaster and retrench, but nonetheless, in retrospect, we can see that this defeat was the start of a long pattern of the empire losing its outlying provinces bit by bit, especially in the West, with these new rising Christian powers challenging them year after year. Now, the Ottomans had been able to face down the major Catholic powers before, such as Venice and Austria. But part of what made this crisis so serious and intractable was a new presence that came into play, a new party to this struggle that completely shifted the balance of power, and that was Russia. So Russia saw a dramatic increase in prosperity and power in the 1700s, largely due to population growth in Europe and the increasing demand for grain, right? And Russia and the Black Sea Littoral were the great breadbasket of Europe. And furthermore, the kingdom underwent aggressive reforms, starting with Peter the Great, which centralized military and religious power in the hands of the Tsar, and basically made the country into a sort of mobilized, militaristic, armed religious camp. Then later under Catherine the Great, 
Russia seized the Khanate of Crimea, that small Muslim statelet on the Black Sea, which had previously been a protectorate under the suzerainty of the Ottomans. And using that land, Catherine the Great founded a series of ports on the Black Sea, firstly Kherson, then Sebastopol and Odessa. And this change dramatically shifted the balance of power. Russia rose to become the main nemesis of the Ottoman Empire rather than the Persians. And it forced the empire to look northward to protect Constantinople, which everyone knew the Russians would be very happy to seize if they could. And it also forced them more and more to look to the sea and build up their navy. But it also, more importantly, it changed the political landscape within the empire. Why is that? Because, as I said, for so many centuries, the Christian subjects of the empire had been willing to acquiesce in in Ottoman rule because they saw the Catholic powers to the West as no better or even worse. But Russia was not Catholic. It was Eastern Orthodox. It shared a deep affinity with the Greek Orthodox Church, and moreover, Russia presented itself as the successor of the Byzantines, the old Christian empire that used to rule from Constantinople. So that means from this point forward, if Christians, particularly Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire, were unhappy, they could look to Russia as a possible sponsor or ally, and they didn't have to worry about then falling under Catholic rule. So now the religious divide between Christians and Muslims was increasingly inflamed, and fear grew year by year of possible disloyalty among the Christian peoples in the Balkans. And this new dynamic was underlined dramatically in 1774 by the Treaty of Kujuk Kainarji. So Russia under Catherine the Great had attacked southward along the western shores of the Black Sea and inflicted a sort of minor defeat on the Ottomans. And all of this might have passed as just a minor incident. But in the treaty at the end of the conflict, Catherine the Great's ambassadors inserted a clause which allowed for the building of a new Eastern Orthodox church in Constantinople on a particular street in the city. And moreover, there were also clauses that empowered Russia to act as the sponsor and protector of, quote, the Orthodox Church. So this clause was very ambiguous. It could be taken to mean that they simply were going to patronize this particular religious establishment in the city, Or it could be interpreted to mean that Russia was now the spokesperson and defender of the entire Orthodox Church and the entire Orthodox population throughout the empire. And this could give Russia then a pretext to intervene in internal Ottoman affairs. And that's exactly what Russia would do in repeated small ways in times of unrest or revolt, such as in Serbia in the early 1800s or Bulgaria in the 1870s. So hence, all in all, with all of these factors considered, by the 1700s, it was clear that the empire was in a mounting crisis, or what we might today call a polycrisis. And the situation was brought into relief most dramatically, and I should mention this here, it was brought into relief by the empire's loss of effective control over Egypt at the end of the century. So Egypt in the 1790s was basically taken over by Mamluk governors, kind of kleptocrat warlords, who again ran the country as basically their their personal tax farm and gave barely nominal obedience to Constantinople. So in 1798, Napoleon, 
a new rising general from France, which was a traditional ally of the Ottomans, Napoleon landed and invaded Egypt and presented himself as sort of the loyal friend of the Ottoman sultan who was helping to regain law and order and control in Egypt. But it seems that he also had bigger grand plans. He was thinking of invading northward, possibly taking Persia and India or Constantinople itself. And in Egypt, he and his officials and his deputies set up a fairly effective administration, which unlike the Mamluk dictators, set up reliable courts of justice and also improvements like clinics and hospitals, improved infrastructure like dams and levees. And even in this short time, this French administration gained a lot of public favor. In the following year, in 1799, Napoleon tried to invade northward through Palestine and into Syria, and he laid siege to the city of Acre in Palestine. But the local warlord Jazar the Butcher was able to hold him off for long enough that other regional potentates and Ottoman officials and troops were able to rally together and protect the province against Napoleon. So Napoleon gave up, retreated back to Egypt for a time, and then withdrew from Egypt back to France, where he then overthrew the government in a coup and made himself dictator of France. And it happens that this brief French incursion into Egypt also is where they discovered the Rosetta Stone, just by the way. But nonetheless, when Napoleon withdrew back to France, it left behind another power vacuum. And so Ottoman mercenaries from Europe moved in, and they were led by an Albanian officer named Muhammad Ali. And the following year in 1800, Muhammad Ali, almost like a little Napoleon again, declared himself the ruler or Khedive of Egypt. And he sustained and extended the system of reforms and improvements that had been started by the French. And in this way, his sort of regional administration, which again gave at least formalistic obedience to Constantinople, this Muhammad Ali administration in Egypt became an inspiration for reform, but the direct material benefits of these improvements mainly stayed within Egypt rather than flowing back to the capital. So all in all, this whole series of incidents with Russia in the north, with Napoleon and Muhammad Ali in Egypt, all of these events demonstrated that the Ottoman state was falling desperately behind the West. And even after 1800, even behind its own supposed province in Egypt. And the need for reform was urgent and undeniable. Okay, so given that that was the situation that had become clear to basically everyone by the 1700s, what did the Ottomans do about it? How did they respond to this multi-level crisis? Well, you can see in response four basic waves of reform in the empire. And the earliest was a series of fairly modest practical reforms in the early 1700s. And they began during the so-called tulip period in the 1720s under the Sultan Ahmed III. So this was a period of relative prosperity, right? After the empire had basically uh, retrenched and secured its borders after those early losses in Hungary and the Peloponnese, they were able to retrench they encouraged and opened up more trade, especially with the increasingly prosperous countries of Western Europe. And there was a period under Ahmed III that was known for prosperity and opulence. And the Sultan oversaw the creation of elaborate palaces and gardens. He had a sort of obsession with tulips. He would throw open the gardens for a massive tulip festival every spring. 
And in this way, it sort of captured the imagination of the West. It spurred on a sort of fashion for turquerie or Turkish things in France and Western Europe. But he also oversaw the introduction of new practical institutions to address concrete problems and shore up the empire. For one thing, the navy discarded and replaced the old galleys that had been driven by human power, especially slave power, and replaced them with a fleet of sailing ships, which were more labor efficient, faster, and better equipped to protect the vital sea lanes of the empire. He organized fire brigades to fight fires in the major cities starting in 1720. He sponsored the creation of the first Turkish language press, which was created in 1727. And this allowed for quicker and wider exchange of information, pronouncements, new ideas and information from the West. It also created a small backlash of resentment among traditional scribes and calligraphers who were very respected and influential in Constantinople. And all in all, the, both the extravagance and opulence and the westernization of the tulip period brought about suspicion because of its extravagance, right? And because these were foreign Western styles, especially incorporating pictorial and figural art, which were taboo in the Islamic world. And also it aroused suspicion because of the dabbling in what you might call more secular justifications for government policy. Right? This undermined the traditional justification of the sultan's authority, which was rooted in his role as protector and enforcer of Islam. And so this increasing discontent, dissatisfaction, you could say paranoia towards this new westernizing foreign-influenced court, this came to a head then in 1730. And it happened because the sultan, Ahmed, recognized that in order to continue these reforms and to continue this peaceable trade with the West, he had to basically settle that long dispute with Persia. And he made certain concessions, basically giving up certain territories in the eastern borders to the Persians, including towns and villages that were traditionally Sunni Muslim rather than Shiite. And this was seen as a great betrayal, right, of the cause of true Islam and of jihad. And so a street preacher in Constantinople basically stirred up and led riots in the capital. The Janissaries joined in and supported the rioters. And finally, the Grand Mufti issued a fetva deposing Ahmed III, who then was sequestered and died in the cafe six years later in 1736. So the tulip period and this reaction in 1730 demonstrated several things. One was that traditional elites and institutions perceived the threats of change, the threats to their own status and position in society, and threats to the sort of core beliefs underpinning the empire. And so these traditional elites would have to be either persuaded to accept reform or simply done away with. And most important of them, of course, was the Janissaries, which not only had to be drastically reformed in order to fight off these more modern, formidable armies coming from the West, but also they would have to be relied upon to enforce other reforms in government and civil society. And so it was clear to all subsequent sultans that the Janissaries would have to be reined in and brought under central control, if not simply abolished entirely. 
So the next wave of reform that came decades later was a wave of military reform from the late 1700s through the 1800s. And this campaign of reform was started by the Sultan Selim III, who came to the throne in 1789. And Selim began the creation of a so-called New Order Army, which would have modern organization and weaponry, and it would be advised by French and Scottish mercenaries, some of whom came over temporarily as sort of consultants and advisors, and some of whom defected permanently and converted to Islam. Selim III clearly hoped that these mercenary advisors would be able to build up a new force under direct imperial control, which eventually would be capable of facing down or even disbanding the Janissaries. Now, the Janissaries, for their part, were not fools. They saw that they were under threat, and they sometimes fought and skirmished with these new modern units in the streets and barracks. And also, they repeatedly rioted when new practices and reforms, even things as simple as new uniforms or new rifles, were introduced into their units. And this growing tension came to a head then in 1807, when the commanders brought in new uniforms with Western-style coats and breeches into the Janissary Guard at the capital. So these Janissaries at the capital city mutinied, they killed their drill commander, and then marched on the city. Salem III gave in and disbanded the New Order Army, and then shortly after was deposed in a coup and replaced anyway. So the program of military reform was suspended, and it had to be restarted several years later, by another sultan named Mahmoud II. And he restarted this modern corps under an alternate name. Instead of using this ominous title like New Order Army, he called them the New Keepers of the Hounds, basically invoking and reusing this old name for a previous imperial bodyguard unit. So in this way, he sort of gave it the, the appearance, the veneer of precedent and tradition. But this New Keeper of the Hounds unit was built up as quickly as possible, and meanwhile, at the same time, the sultan lavishly patronized mosques and Sufi orders in order to secure favor and support among the religious clergy. And he was preparing for the eventual need for the clergy or the ulema's support so that they would not join the Janissaries in case the Janissaries revolted. And eventually, once it seemed that this new force was large and well-trained and prepared enough, he saw an opportunity in 1820. And in that year, the Sultan declared Ali Pasha, the sort of potentate ruling in Albania and northwestern Greece, to be a rebel. And he sought to crush his autonomous despotate. And to do so, he sent in the new army units who successfully deposed him and reinstituted direct imperial control of those provinces. However, this then touched off another cascading crisis, because some of the local people in that area were very unhappy, especially Greeks. So Ali Pasha, although he was a sort of corrupt kleptocrat, nonetheless he'd allowed great autonomy and fostered some cultural and literary flourishing, especially among Greek speakers in the region called Epirus in the northwestern corner of Greece. So when they saw Ali Pasha crushed, this touched off resistance. So what had been going on in Greece? Well, at this time, there was a growing national and patriotic feeling among Greeks, especially among the young, including in Athens and in the southern and western parts of Greece. These were areas that had a lot of active trade with the West, especially with France. There was a large Greek emigrant community in Marseille, 
and there were a lot of trade and social links, especially through Freemasonry, which spread from Marseille into Greece. And these served then as conduits for radical new ideas, ideas coming from the French Revolution, of civic freedom, constitutionalism, the slogans of liberty, equality, fraternity, and then also after 1800, also romantic nationalism, the idea of an organic nation rooted in the folk and the ways of the folk. And finally, also Hellenism and neoclassicism. So instead of the long-lasting traditional nostalgia for the Byzantines, which was sort of customary among Greeks in the Ottoman Empire, this sort of longing for a return to the Christian Greek Empire, instead, these new younger Greeks embraced this new celebration of the glories of ancient Greece, of ancient Athens and Sparta, including the ideals of democracy. And Ali Pasha's domains had fostered this sort of Greek patriotic renaissance, you could call it. And so the crushing of Ali Pasha then touched off a revolt, which started in 1821 and spread quickly. And it was supported, at least by gestures, from some Greek Orthodox priests within Greece, although it was opposed and condemned by the patriarch in Constantinople. And once this Greek rebellion began, Sultan Mahmoud basically went on a rampage. He had the Greek Orthodox patriarch in Constantinople publicly hanged in the gateway in front of the palace, which only further inflamed and alienated Greeks all around the empire. And then he sent in this new modernized military unit to fight against the Greek rebels. And they were successful in taking back control of most all of the country, except for a few forts and towns along the west coast. So after this apparent success, and it seems that Mahmoud sort of overestimated this success, and after this supposed victory, he then brought most of the troops back to the capital. And in 1826, he basically rolled the dice. He declared sweeping reforms of the Janissaries, changing their dress, training, and command structure. Foreseeably, this touched off a mutiny and revolt of Janissaries around the city. But the Islamic clergy stayed quiet and stayed out of this dispute. Also, there were no mobs or riots that emerged in the streets. The Janissaries were more or less isolated. And so the Sultan's new army units attacked, fought the Janissaries, and they were forced to fall back onto their barracks, which the Sultan's troops then shelled and torched until they burned down. Fleeing Janissaries were fired upon, and over the next several weeks, dozens of their leaders and organizers were arrested and hanged. Then, shortly after, of course, the rest of the corps throughout the empire was forcibly disbanded and abolished. So once the Janissaries were destroyed, there was still, of course, the unresolved situation in Greece. And the Greek rebels basically reopened the fight with the help of many sympathetic Western volunteers coming from Britain and France. You may know Lord Byron was one of them. And so these volunteers and Greek rebels fought on until the Ottomans finally were forced to accept the independence of a new kingdom of Greece in 1832. And this was a very small kingdom created with extensive Western diplomatic support that basically just occupied the southwestern part of the country, basically the Peloponnese in the south and the area around Athens in Attica. And the foreign powers installed a German prince from Bavaria as the first so-called king of the Greeks. So the Ottomans had to accept this loss of a significant part of Greece, although most of Greece, modern-day Greece, still remained under Ottoman control. And although it was just a small kingdom, it nonetheless set the dangerous precedent of a new independent state being carved out of what had been Ottoman territory. 
And basically, they had to swallow this as the price that they had to pay for finally dispensing with the Janissaries and eliminating this threat to imperial power and reform. So now the main arm of imperial power was this new modern army and navy. And these were put under the test really for the first time in facing off against Egypt. So Muhammad Ali, who basically was running more or less his own independent king in Egypt, he butted heads with Constantinople, right, who wanted obedience, compliance, taxes, and soldiers. So in 1831, Muhammad Ali invaded northward, again, much like Napoleon had done before him. He invaded northward, entered all the way into Anatolia, and forced the sultan to recognize and accept him as the dynastic ruler or Khedive of Egypt. But nonetheless, Muhammad Ali in return accepted Ottoman overlordship and agreed to provide regular payments of money and to supply troops when needed. So this sort of negotiated truce with Muhammad Ali you can see as closing the main kind of tumultuous period of military reform in the empire, which then, once it was completed, allowed for the next wave, a resumed diplomatic and commercial opening to the West and reforms and changes that came with it. And these began in the 1830s under the same sultan, Mahmoud II. So the sultan established more permanent embassies among the great powers of Europe, staffed by trained professional diplomats. He hired more consultants to oversee governmental and administrative reform and sponsored a campaign of infrastructural improvement, largely modeled on what was going on at the same time in Egypt. Again, Egypt was sort of the harbinger of change in the empire. So under Muhammad Ali, there had been reforms and improvements such as sponsorship of Western-style education and the arts, public projects. From Egypt to Constantinople, there spread a new educational campaign, the creation of schools for secular knowledge, teaching science, geography, and the Western languages, especially French. These schools produced graduates who were prepared for civil service, the diplomatic corps, or military offices. And then finally, Mahmoud made some initial partial gestures towards a final wave of reform, which was internal legal reform. So he began to revoke tax exemptions that had been extended to Muslims and started to impose conscription requirements on Muslim communities to feed personnel into this new modern army. And this touched off a rebellion most significantly in Bosnia and the Balkans, which was a predominantly Muslim country. And the rebellion was led by local Muslim elites who resented these new tax and conscription requirements, but it was defeated. And the sultan pressed ahead with these attempts at reform until he died of tuberculosis in July 1839. And he was succeeded then by his 16-year-old son named Abdul Majid. So this was a very young new sultan who had been deeply influenced by the new ideas of the time and by his modern Western-style education. So a few months after coming to the throne, in November 1839, this young sultan Abdul Majid held a grand ceremony at the Sublime Port, where from a balcony he promulgated the so-called imperial rescript of the Rose Chamber. And this was a very unusual and dramatic moment, even just in that the sultan was publicly appearing in, over, in order to oversee a proclamation. And he and his vizier announced that the sultan would reform the law and government of the empire 
abolishing all legal distinctions of religion and making all subjects equal citizens under a single law. Now this all might have sounded well and good as a statement of principle, but it was extremely difficult and complicated to implement. It would completely overturn centuries of legal practice and governing philosophy of the whole empire. So it would have to be carried out gradually by a long series of reforms, which were announced and promulgated and instituted in successive waves through the 1840s, which came to be called Tanzimat, basically meaning restructuring, similar to perestroika. So these reforms were instituted mostly in the 1840s and then were followed up at various occasions from the 1850s to the 1870s. And Tanzimat included the creation of a new uniform criminal code and then a civil code. And this new system of laws was very complex and it reflected a hybrid compromise, blending together the traditional Islamic shariat with the French Napoleonic code. And this involved the creation of whole new courts designed to carry out this code that replaced the old religious courts. The Tanzimat also created a whole new tax system. The jizya head tax on non-Muslims was abolished, and it was replaced with a system of property taxes, which sought to tap into the wealth of landlords, nobles, and also wakifs, the traditional religious endowments, which could be very rich. Tanzimat expanded the trained military, school system, and civil service, all of which in principle would be interreligious, hiring and, and dispensing authority and offices without regard to religious affiliation. It instituted a conscription system, which drafted young men into the army also without regard to religion. So all of these dramatic changes from the 1840s to the 1870s were momentous, and meaningful, and they elicited a complex mixture of reactions and opinions from the people of the empire. The feelings about these reforms among non-Muslims included a great deal of enthusiasm. Naturally, there were many reasons to be happy that traditional unequal laws and policies that discriminated against non-Muslims were being removed. And it led to some degree of of good favor and new support for the monarchy. It also led to a small wave of immigration, with many persecuted religious groups such as Jews and Catholics migrating from the Russian Empire down into the Ottoman Empire to take advantage of this new opportunity for legal equality. And interestingly, a Polish town called Polonezkoy was actually founded in Anatolia near Istanbul in 1842 as a refuge for Polish revolutionary exiles, mainly fleeing from the Russians. However, the Tanzimat reforms also led to some degree of dissatisfaction among many non-Muslims as well. Why? Because it swept away the old system, which had given them a great degree of self-government and autonomy with their own courts, religious schools, and the use of their own languages. There was a fear in many parties of losing traditions and distinct identities in this new standardization. You could say in a word they were afraid of assimilation. And indeed, a lot of the Tanzimat reforms were followed up by sort of symbolic assimilationist rules like uh, abolishing traditional religious dress for people in public office or the military, as all were required to wear sort of jackets, breeches, and the fez, which more and more the fez hat became the, the symbol of the sort of new modern Ottoman man. Now, what about among Muslims? 
Among Muslims, there was, of course, not surprisingly, some dissatisfaction, often for practical material reasons, like having to pay high taxes from which they had been excluded, having religious endowments, the waqifs, taxed for the first time, also being subject to conscription, rather than simply having the opportunity to volunteer to join the armed forces if they want to. And these things led to rebellions, such as I mentioned before in Bosnia and then another in Albania in 1844. Also, symbolically, there was a concern over the loss of importance of Islam and the Quran in the kind of life and ideology of the empire. There was a kind of deep feeling of alienation or anxiety as the empire seemed to give up its sacred purpose as the defender of Islam. Okay, so there were deeply mixed feelings among the populace, it seems, about the Tanzimat reforms. But did they work? What were the results socially, politically? Well, to begin with just the straightforward practical results. The new military was built up quickly over the course of the 1840s, basically just in time to then take part effectively in the Crimean War. And the good performance of these new modernized Ottoman troops actually brought new respect and prestige for the empire in Europe. And the peace conference at the end of the war formally recognized the Ottoman Empire as a European state and a full party to the diplomatic conventions and procedures of Europe. And this new recognition as a modern state helped then with the government's efforts to bring in Western ideas, personnel, and especially investment starting in the 1850s. So the schools and colleges multiplied, the infrastructure was rapidly built out, and again, this campaign largely followed the model of Egypt. So if we go back to Egypt, after Muhammad Ali had died in 1849, his sons and grandsons succeeded him as rulers of that province, and they carried on his policies of reform. They made further improvements in infrastructure, they had the first railroad and telegraphs built in Egypt, both in 1854. And then the Suez Canal was built under Egyptian sponsorship by a French company in the 1860s. They also patronized Western art and architecture, for instance, commissioning the opera Aida from Verdi to be performed at the Opera House in Cairo in 1870. So these rapid changes in Egypt then set, again, set the pace and set a model for the imperial government in Constantinople, which laid the first telegraph line installed in Constantinople during the Crimean War in 1855, and then followed up with the creation of an extensive telegraph network running all the way west into Europe. In the 1860s, they had railroads built out from the port city of Izmir and then through many parts of the empire. In the 1870s and 80s, rails were built through the Balkans, connecting to the rest of Europe, and famously the Orient Express began running as a passenger, regular passenger line from Paris to Constantinople starting in 1882. The government supported the building up of export industries and subsidized many export trades, and as a result, there was a considerable degree of prosperity in this period, starting in the 1850s through the 1860s and into the early 1870s. And with new revenue and with a great deal of credit and loans from Western Europe, the government launched a fleet of ironclad ships, which had been purchased from Western manufacturers for a modern ironclad fleet. The sultans built a series of massive new palaces, 
So the Sultan Abdulaziz in the 1860s was known as convivial and hedonistic, and he built up an ostentatious public palace complex in the Baroque style at the site of Dolma Bache, overlooking the Bosporus. Then his successor, Abdul Hamid, was known to be more pious, private, and even paranoid, and he built a lavish private palace surrounded by parks and gardens at Yildiz. So in many ways, the power and the prestige of the empire, both in hard practical terms and in symbolic and aesthetic terms, was very much on the rise. But there was a downside. A lot of this massive buildup and modernization was based upon high taxes and also on enormous loans from Western banks. And as the loan interest payments continued to mount, eventually the government was forced to default in 1875 and the bubble burst. The empire went effectively bankrupt and fortunately the regime did not collapse, but it was forced to accept the imposition of a debt commission with directors appointed by Western governments who would examine and oversee the imperial budget. So it was an enormous intrusion into Ottoman sovereignty. And it was a new humiliation, which was then quickly compounded by another sort of rolling crisis, a series of riots and rebellions in the Balkans, which then provoked another war with Russia, which they lost, unlike the Crimean War. And this series of failures then spurred on also a political crisis, as subjects of the empire reacted to these rapid reforms and the boom, bust, and bankruptcy. So what did people make of this? And what sort of direction did the subjects, who increasingly were more and more literate, more and more able to speak and read and interact freely using newspapers, magazines, the telegraph, what did people make of this? And what sort of direction did they seek out for the empire? Well, you can see more or less three basic intellectual and ideological camps that formed in this ferment of the late 1800s. And those are Ottomanism, Pan-Islamism, and Nationalism. So to start with Ottomanism, this was a sort of loose term for the idea that the empire should be a liberal, modern, and Western state, with people of all religions and ethnicities sharing a common loyalty to one government. And this arguably started off as basically the state philosophy as promulgated by Abdul Majid and embodied in the Tanzimat. But over the course of years, it expanded. It became more radical and, and demanded more dramatic social change. And Ottomanism was spurred on to a great degree by the experience of the Crimean War as Western soldiers and nurses moved right through the heart of the empire. And people saw things like not only new technologies and languages, but also women working openly, unveiled, caring for soldiers, making decisions, making money. And these sort of new personal freedoms, especially for women, became more common and normal in the empire, especially in the cities. And it led to desire for greater, a greater influx of these new ideas, freedom of speech and the press, the freedom to travel abroad. And this Ottomanist philosophy was embraced, especially by sort of young reformists who came to be called young Ottomans. And more and more, the young Ottoman philosophy coalesced around a particular demand, the demand for a constitution which would limit the powers of the monarch and provide for open participation in government and for basic rights like 
freedom of speech and of the press. And this movement was largely resisted and kept at bay by the Sultan Abdulaziz until he died in 1876. And he was succeeded by Abdul Hamid, who was, as I said, understood to be quite paranoid, very afraid of opposition. And his strategy was to quickly mollify this young Ottomanist movement as much as possible. And so he agreed to the institution of a new constitution, the Constitution of 1876, which was very moderate. It was sort of designed, as often happens when monarchs grant constitutions, it was designed to basically divide and undermine the opposition. And it provided for an imperial parliament, which would have very little powers, basically just symbolic, and which would be elected indirectly through multiple tiers of councils, you know, in that way, sort of like the American Electoral College. And so it would have very little direct popular input or responsiveness to popular pressure. But nonetheless, it was a great landmark when this parliament first met at the end of 1876. And the delegates came together and the populace had elected a parliament with 71 Muslims, 44 Christians, and four Jews. And you could see it as a sort of symbolic marker of interreligious cooperation in this new sort of popular project of empire. It convened and operated for only about one year until the sultan suspended it as this massive financial, civil, and military crisis broke out. Abdul Hamid was fearful of criticism and opposition, and he was fearful especially of the parliament openly undermining the war effort against Russia as they engaged in this second war with Russia. And he claimed that the country was not yet ready for this open debate, and he hinted that he would call it again eventually down the line, but he did not do so for over 30 years. So that in a way sort of gave some recognition, but then also again suppressed this Ottomanist movement. So the second camp that I'll talk about was pan-Islamism. So this was roughly a desire to renew the Islamic purpose of the empire, but to do so based more on appeal to the feelings of the Muslim folk. People like, for instance, the Turkomans, the sort of low-status Turkish peasants who had long been kind of shunted aside and ignored in Anatolia, but who were among the most pious and fervent Muslims in the empire. In some places, there was a rise of Islamic fundamentalism and of extreme, rigorous Islamic groups like Wahhabi groups in Arabia, who often were supported covertly by Europeans as a way of weakening the empire from within. But more often, pan-Islamism was based on a sense of Muslim unity and solidarity and identification with the wider Islamic ummah, or global Muslim community. And pan-Islamism grew especially after 1880 and sometimes began to outcompete Ottomanism. And there was a demographic shift going on that made this possible when you consider that the, the empire was losing many of its Western territories in Europe. And as that happened, the demographic balance was shifting. It was shifting eastward. Christians were becoming a smaller minority of the empire and a larger and larger portion of the population was Muslim. And with this came a sort of increased call to possibly undo, partially undo the Tanzimat reforms and to sort of restore the fundamental Islamic character of the empire. 
And the Sultan Abdul Hamid, who reigned from 1876 to 1909, was very subtly and cautiously sympathetic to pan-Islamism. He was known to be private and extremely pious. He made, for many years, he made no public appearances except a solemn procession from his palace to mosque for prayers. The government supported various religious or religiously tinged projects, especially focusing on the Hajj, the sort of universal Muslim pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. And supporting and sponsoring the Hajj was a way to emphasize the Sultan's role as the keeper of the holy places and also this ancient claim as caliph, leader and protector of Islam. So the government set up regular steamship services on the Red Sea to take pilgrims from all around Asia and Africa to Mecca and Medina. And in 1900, they started the construction of the Pilgrim Railway, a special small-gauge railway to run from Damascus to Medina. Again, to take, in this case, to take Europeans and subjects of the empire down to the holy cities. There also was a selective elevation of Muslim groups in the empire over others. For instance, Arabs. So Arabs and Turks, of course, are completely different ethnic groups, although they share the Islamic faith. And for many years, Arabs, like Turkomans in Anatolia, also had been basically excluded, officially or unofficially, from high levels of government or the military. Even, Even the Janissaries were traditionally drawn from the Christian populations. So Arabs had been very much shut out. But Abdul Hamid supported a campaign to reverse this and to bring Arabs up into top levels of government to the detriment of both Turks and Christians. Also Kurds. So Kurds are another unrelated ethnic group, in this case an Indo-European ethno-linguistic group in eastern Anatolia. And they also had been regarded as basically peasant bumpkins excluded from power. But the sultan approved a policy of formally recognizing the old-fashioned Kurdish marauding bands who had been sort of a nuisance in the hills at the eastern end of the empire. And they had long harassed and preyed upon especially Christians. And under Abdul Hamid, the empire granted these militia groups formal commissions as imperial militias called Hamidiyya. So in all of these ways, you can see pan-Islamism sort of subtly coloring and guiding imperial policy in these last years. And then thirdly, nationalism. So with the Tanzimat reforms, religion had basically been displaced and de-emphasized, de-emphasized as a source of distinctiveness. And so local groups and people with local and regional loyalties, if that sort of undergirding, that underpinning of religion was taken away, they had to fall back in many cases on language and folk culture as the embodiments of these local identities. And so nationalism found more and more of an audience, both among Christian groups like Greeks and Armenians and Bulgarians, and also among Turks and Arabs even. And it was fueled also by the romantic nationalism coming in from the West, especially from France. And so nationalism was taken up by many groups, Slavic, ethnic and national groups like Bulgars and Bosnians in the Balkans, by Armenians, and especially promoted and led by Armenian emigrants and exiles abroad, also Jews with Zionism. And Zionism was increasingly brought in to the empire by immigrants moving into Palestine in the wake of the pogroms in the Russian Empire. And finally, it also was taken up by Turks. And this 
the identity of being Turkish had never before really been seen as valuable or high status. Right? The, the ideology of the empire was religious. It was about power and Islam. And many Turks were just seen as more or less superfluous. The Turkomans, as I said, were generally ignored or sometimes brutally repressed and persecuted by the Ottoman government. Well, now in the later 19th century, many writers, intellectuals, and reformists began to celebrate the Turkish language and the folkways of the Turkish people of the empire, especially Anatolia, which they more and more emphasized as the sort of heartland of the empire. And this fueled a, the passion then of a new reformist and nationalist generation of Turks who came then to be called Young Turks, right? So you have the Young Ottomans and then about a generation later, the Young Turks. But we'll go back to them a little later. Now, outside of these sort of emerging ideological camps, what actually happened on the ground? Well, there were consequences to these reforms that really were not foreseen and took several decades to develop and became really incendiary and unpredictable. So the reforms led to a certain degree of social confusion. Among the populace, there was a general destabilization, right, as old rules and procedures were thrown out. And this could lead to anxiety and the inflaming of religious jealousies and enmities. So in the long term, this new ambiguity and this lack of clarity about the new order led to anxiety and distrust and rising into religious strife, sometimes breaking out into violence. Just for example, the rules about conversion were unclear. If everyone was now legally equal, did that mean that now Muslims still could not convert to other religions? Or could they? Was that allowed or was it not? And if it was not, wouldn't that mean that then if everyone is equal, then Christians also should not be able to convert to other religions? Doesn't it mean Christian communities or families should be able to stop and prevent conversions from their faith to Islam? And this sort of ambiguity came to a head in 1875 when a young Bulgarian Christian girl, aged 16, traveled to the city of Salonika in what was then known as Macedonia. Today it's part of Greece. And in that city, she intended to undergo official conversion to do the ceremony to be officially recognized and accepted as a convert to Islam. But in the city, her mother found her and tried to stop her. And a group of Christian women actually kidnapped her to prevent her from undergoing this process. In response, a Muslim mob formed the next day and confronted this Christian group trying to liberate her, in quotation marks. Now, as it seemed more and more that an interreligious riot was brewing, the German and French consuls in the city came together and confronted the crowd, trying to calm them down. But this only further enraged the Muslim crowd, who were increasingly resentful and suspicious of foreign interference from the Western powers, trying to weaken the empire or to weaken their religion. And so the mob was inflamed and they attacked and killed both consuls. So as a result of these murders, protests and riots broke out all around Bulgaria as Christians saw their religion under attack. And in response, then Muslim paramilitary militias, probably with the tacit support of the government, stormed in and charged all around Bulgaria, massacring thousands of Bulgarians. This led then to an international outcry through much of Europe, especially in Russia, 
So there was consternation and condemnation from humanitarians in Britain and France, but especially in Russia, where the more and more fervently nationalist, pro-Slavic, and fervently Eastern Orthodox populace demanded a Russian intervention to protect the Bulgarians. And so Russia attacked. There was an ensuing war of a little bit less than one year, and the war forced the Ottomans to give up control of several Balkan provinces. And then also, less than two decades later in 1894, the mostly Kurdish irregular cavalry units called Hamidiyya that I mentioned before, they began to attack farming villages in the valleys of eastern Anatolia that were mostly Armenian and Christian. And as the violence escalated, they massacred thousands of Armenians. This also then had the result of horrifying Europe and more and more politically and diplomatically isolating the Ottomans as Europeans started to call Abdul Hamid Abdul the Bloody or Abdul the Damned. And additionally, it had the result of radicalizing the Armenian national movement, which had already started in a sort of more low-key way in Armenia and also in the diaspora abroad. And so shortly after, Armenian revolutionary groups organized abroad and launched a campaign for independence. And this campaign included many terroristic acts, such as bombings, assassinations, and hostage-taking, which were aimed at attracting Western attention and support. And what they achieved mainly was they succeeded in making the Ottoman Empire look backwards, chaotic, violent, and repressive. And this was coming on top, then, of the embarrassment of a long series of territorial losses. So what were these territorial losses? Well, I've mentioned already the French took Algeria back in 1834. This was followed up by seizures of Tunisia and Morocco later in the 1800s. Following the Russo-Turkish War of 1878, Romania and Serbia became independent with Russian support. Austria took over and occupied Bosnia, and the British seized Cyprus. And all of these losses compounded a sense of humiliation, especially among Turks, who increasingly saw the empire as an expression of their own nationality and identity, and hence as a source of pride. So this resentment, this sense of national shame and embarrassment, combined then, especially among the young, with also desire for further social reform. This included demands for the restoration of the long-suspended constitution and parliament, through which the new generation hoped that it could take part in remaking the empire and retaking their rightful place among the modern powers of Europe. So all of this fed in then, finally, to the Young Turk Revolution. So the situation came to a head in 1908. And in June of that year, the King of Great Britain, King Edward, and the Tsar of Russia met in a private meeting in Estonia. And many Ottoman subjects feared that this meeting was intended to plan for the final partition of the empire. And so young military officers and soldiers more and more saw Abdul Hamid as weak and a failure who was about to hand the empire over to these foreign powers and lead it to its doom. So in response, a secretive, radical group of officers of the Ottoman Third Army based at Salonika in Macedonia mutinied and took their own commanding officers prisoner. And these officers, it seems, were part of a loosely organized network led by a secretive umbrella group called the CUP, the Committee for Union and Progress. But informally, this network was called the Young Turks. And their ideology was very unclear or inconsistent. There was no single unifying manifesto saying what exactly their agenda was. But it seems to have been a blend of Ottomanism, 
liberalism, and also Turkish nationalism, which as you may notice are in some ways in tension. The Sultan Abdul Hamid was very threatened by the specter of revolt and mutiny within his own army, including among this crucial unit in Salonika that was supposed to be directly loyal to the Sultan. And moreover, he was alarmed and disturbed by this display of mutiny and resistance among Muslim Turks, who should be his most loyal subjects. So in response, Abdul Hamid immediately invited three delegates from the CUP, from Thessalonica, to the capital in order to oversee the drafting and institution of a new constitution. So they did so in a very hurried way. In some ways, this was salutary. It showed recognition of the legitimate demands of the young Turks. But it also left a lot of questions on the table. Again, it was not entirely clear what the young Turks wanted, where they were headed, what their core beliefs were. And they drafted and put this constitution into effect very quickly, with a lot of these questions still in the air. So in the fall of 1908, elections were held, and the CUP put forward a slate of candidates under the label of the Unionist Party, and they won a clear majority in this new parliament. So this new Unionist government, based in the parliament, more or less was a puppet of the Young Turks. They became the real power behind the throne. And the Young Turks followed through on a series of modernizing reforms. And as part of that, they forced the Sultan Abdul Hamid to abdicate. And they added insult to injury by forcing him into exile in Salonika, in the city where the mutiny had first begun. They replaced him with his brother, who took the throne as Mehmed V, and who basically accepted limited powers and allowed himself to be more or less a figurehead for this Young Turk government. And the Young Turks tried to shore up loyalty and to suppress nationalism and separatism in the empire, but they did so in a very uneven way, showing clear, if covert, preference to Turks. For example, they issued laws banning any national or ethnic organizations. So an Armenian club or a Arab society, all of those were shut down and suppressed as threats to the unity of the empire. But they didn't do the same to Turkish clubs. And they made this sort of, you know, flimsy argument that, well, Turkish is a language and it's the official language of the empire. So it's perfectly okay to have a Turkish club or Turkish society. That's not illegal. And so for this reason, and partly because of this uneven sort of favoritism towards Turks, the ethno-national tensions and separatism did not go away. And some were even more inflamed. And at the same time, the territorial losses continued. So in the autumn of 1908, shortly after coming to power, the CUP government had to recognize the independence of Bulgaria, and hence they were now left with only one remaining province in Europe, namely Macedonia, which is basically modern-day North Macedonia, Albania, and Northern Greece. In 1911, Italy, a new rising European power on the scene, landed troops and seized control of Libya, and then when the Ottomans tried to fight back, they further seized the island of Rhodes in Greece, very close to the heart of the empire. In 1912, a coalition of states along the Balkan border of the empire, namely Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Montenegro, banded together in the Balkan League and jointly attacked the Ottomans and seized Macedonia. And hence, after this final loss, the only piece of territory left in the European continent under Ottoman control was a small zone around the cities of Constantinople and Edirne, basically that section that is still today part of Turkey. Outside of that, everything had now been lost. 
And so it seemed taking stock by 1912 that the military and political reforms, although they'd been effective in some respects, they had failed to catch up. They had not moved fast enough. And furthermore, the paranoia of the sultan and the apparent weak will of the sultan left them vulnerable to enemies. So now at this point, they had no provinces, no outlying provinces left in Europe or North Africa, and Egypt was effectively lost, more really now under British domination than Ottoman. But nonetheless, all was not hopeless. They still had a considerable amount of assets. They still held all of their traditional territories in Asia, which are Anatolia, Armenia, Kurdistan, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, and the Hejaz, including the prestigious holy cities. They also still held the strategically crucial capital at Constantinople. And so in these ways, they still have considerable military power, and they had significantly improved modern infrastructure. So in these ways, they still arguably had the potential to come back and reassert themselves as an important presence on the world stage. And moreover, a diplomatic realignment now seemed possible. So over the years, a coalition really of Western enemies had formed, with Britain, France, Italy, and Russia all increasingly banding together and ganging up on the Ottomans, and all of them wanting to see the empire finally die so that they could simply carve it up among themselves. But the odd man out then was Germany. And indeed, not only the Ottomans, but also Kaiser Wilhelm himself long saw the possibility of gaining power, influence, and prestige through a partnership. And Wilhelm had made great efforts to get involved in the Ottoman Empire and try to use it as a counterbalance to his rivals in Europe. So all the way back in 1898, Kaiser Wilhelm visited Constantinople, was received by the Sultan at the palace, and then further went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And he publicly acted as a patron to Western Christians, giving endowments of money and land to Christian societies in the Holy Land. And he also laid a wreath at the grave of Saladin, the great Muslim hero and opponent of the Crusades, and he made a dramatic speech declaring himself to be a friend to Muslims around the world. And this was a significant move, not only as a way of building a bridge to the Ottoman Empire, but also as a way of undermining and provoking his rivals, the British, the French, and the Russians, all of whom ruled over subject Muslim populations. After 1900, Wilhelm and the sultans supported programs to have Ottoman officers train in Germany. And the Kaiser also encouraged German industries to invest and build up rails and telegraphs, etc., with the hope of eventually building railways all the way from Constantinople to Iraq. And the Kaiser knew that oil had recently been discovered in both Iraq and Persia, and hence that oil fields, rails, and shipyards in the Middle East would probably become lucrative very quickly. So there was a wave of increasing German investment and involvement and an emerging alliance between Germany and the Ottoman Empire. And by 1914, it was clear that Germany had become the main partner of the Ottomans in Europe. And that was the basic lay of the land then when, as we know, war broke out involving Germany in 1914. So thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to hear all of my materials, including patron-only materials, such as my hopefully upcoming Myth of the Month on culture, please sign up as a patron. 
and I hope to continue this series in future with examination of more nations that provoked and entered into the First World War, and I expect that most likely the next one will be Serbia. So please keep listening. And finally, thank you to the letter F, and more specifically to my current active patrons whose names begin with F, namely Finnegan and Franco Consalvo. Thank you.